If you would please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. Luke, chapter 7. We'll read verses 11 to 17 of Luke 7. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. A large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin, and those, bearing, uh, those carrying it stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praise God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Today we're beginning a new series. It's a series on miracles. In 1947, C.S. Lewis wrote a book entitled Miracles. And in the book, he observed that miracles are essential to Christianity in a way that is not true of any other religious system. Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam do not require us to step out of the bounds of creation, that something comes in and acts on creation. Christianity differs from these in that it is given that the world is broken, It is, in fact, fallen. It requires an invasion of divine power and action for salvation. If you read through the Gospels, as we have done this past year, we find the miracles that Jesus worked while he was here on earth. But, as C.S. Lewis observes, the central miracle asserted by Christians is the Incarnation. That is God coming in the flesh. They say that God became man. Every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this. There is no question in Christianity of arbitrary interferences just scattered about. It relates not a series of disconnected raids on nature, but the various steps of a strategically coherent invasion, an invasion which intends complete conquest and occupation. The Lord willing, we'll see more on this in the weeks to come. When we think of Jesus and miracles, we remember that he healed various conditions, those who had leprosy, those who were blind, and more, the woman who had bleeding for 12 years. He multiplied loaves and fishes to feed thousands, and did this on more than one occasion. He cast out demons, he walked on the water, he calmed storms, and as we've read in our text today, He raised the dead. It is a remarkable record, but it raises a lot of questions. For modern people, I think the people to whom C.S. Lewis was writing, the primary question that comes up is, did these really take place? If we go beyond this, we need to ask, if they did take place, what do they mean? What are we supposed to make of them? How did they happen? And Is it relevant? How are they relevant to us today? In this series, what I want us to look at, the meaning and the relevance of the miracles of Jesus. But we can't skip over the question of whether or not these really happened. 
Miracles, in fact, bring up a lot of questions, like what kind of a world do we live in? Is it a closed system? Is it possible for something to come into our world and change things in a miraculous way? Or is, in fact, the world closed off? Or do we just see them as sort of hiccups in nature that happen? We can't explain why, but suddenly someone's cancer is gone. Something like that. Do we think the world runs on its own? That it's a sort of a self-sufficient mechanism? The other questions that come up are, does God exist? And if he does, what kind of a God is he that works through miracles? And if he works through miracles, why? Why why does he do that? And then the big question in our series is, who is Jesus, the one through whom these miracles took place? Let's get back to the, the first question. Did these miracles really take place? Did Jesus really perform miracles? People have been debating this for centuries. And rather than join in the debate, um, I think we need to consider the background or the, the issues that come into play when we ask this question. The first issue that comes into play is the existence of God. Does God really exist? And if he does, what kind of God is he? See, the miracles that are described in the Bible are not merely unusual events. Unusual occurrences, acts of God, we might call them. Or events for which we have no scientific explanation. These, in fact, are acts of God. They are deliberate and they dramatically indicate that he is at work in his creation. If God does not exist, then clearly miracles do not either. We may have hiccups in nature, but not miracles. Second question is, what kind of God is he? Do we envision God as someone who created everything, but then he backed off? He, he's not involved in the day-to-day running of things. He's just, you know, he creates it and then sort of lets it go on its own. Uh, to be a deist, to say that he's the great clockmaker. He wound it up and now creation is going along on its own. Do we imagine that God is distant, that he doesn't care about what happens in the lives of his creatures? Do we think he set up the world as a perfect mechanism and it requires no outside help from him? I think such of you would see a miracle as a defect. That's not the way it's supposed to be. You know, things are going along and maybe not well, but then a miracle comes in and changes the course, well, that sort of messes up the whole system. Do we think, in fact, that what we call the laws of nature, do we think them to be sacrosanct? That is, you cannot violate them. These are laws, and God is subject to these laws as well. God, as revealed in Scripture, is the one who initially created the world, and then he continues to act to sustain the world he created. His existence is displayed throughout the things he created, and he's made himself known to all human beings through what he has made. All people know God. They may suppress that knowledge. They may deny that he exists. They create substitutes for him. Let me read to you the familiar words of Paul in Romans 1. 
The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. Arguments about whether or not God exists can, in fact, I think, be helpful. It can be instrumental for reminding people of what they already know. They know this, but they have suppressed the truth, Paul tells us. But in fact, the value of such arguments is limited, I think, more than we recognize. Because no argument, no person is religiously neutral. People who suppress the truth are in in rebellion. They are against God. And so if you were to make an argument for them, it really doesn't ring with them. It doesn't ring true because they are in rebellion against God. According to scripture, God is continually active in the regularities of creation as well as the irregularities, the miracles. His governing word is why we can talk about natural laws, the laws of nature, because he does things consistently. He is king and lord over both the regulars and the exceptions. The regularities, by the way, is what made modern science possible. Um, God is a personal God. He's not a mechanistic thing, if you wish, a mechanistic uh, system. God is a person, which means he can, by his will, bring about these miracles, these irregularities. They are not only possible but they are understandable, and that is important. God has purposes for them. A third question that comes up is, are the miracles that are recorded in the Gospels, such as the one we've just read about in Luke 7, are they really credible? This is something that's been debated for centuries as well. But one must consider that the record of the Gospels will not be credible if God does not exist and if miracles are impossible. So if you say God does not exist, it's a closed system, there are no miracles, then the Gospels, no, they cannot be believed. They cannot be seen as credible because you've already taken an a priority uh, position that this is what I believe and therefore I cannot believe what the Gospels say. But even if we believe the Gospels to be credible, there may still be questions. Did they really take place? And did they take place the way that they are described? There are at least three subset questions that we have to deal with here. The first is, did the authors of the Gospels, as they wrote this Gospels, the Gospels, intend to claim that these things really happened? Were they writing the truth or were they writing works of fiction? 
I think a shallow or a deep reading, either one of the Gospels, suggests that they in fact were conveying what they saw and what they believed to be true. Luke begins his Gospel this way. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. These things are true. They are certain. And then John, near the end of his gospel, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Simply put, the authors were not writing fiction. The second is, were the Gospels successful in conveying historically accurate information? Again, this is sort of beyond what we're looking at in terms of miracles. But I would point out that as we go through the Gospels, there are times in which we have non-biblical sources that confirm it. So what Zib read to us last week from the beginning of Luke chapter 2, talking about Quirinius and Augustus, and then when we read about Pontius Pilate and Herod, these things are confirmed um, by non-biblical sources. The third question is, do the Gospels have only human authority or do they have divine authority in what they say? If they have divine authority, then they are trustworthy and we can believe what they say. They are reliable because God is trustworthy. The fourth question is, who is Jesus? What we think about the miracles in the Gospels really depends on what we think about Jesus. If Jesus is the Messiah that is promised by Old Testament prophecies, then the miracles make sense because these were in fact promised we find in the Old Testament. These are fitting accompaniments, if you wish, or supports to his work as the Messiah. On the other hand, if you don't think that Jesus was the Messiah, then I think you would tend to be skeptical. You wouldn't necessarily deny, but you would be skeptical about the miracles that are recorded in the Gospels. I think, in fact, Scripture gives us the answers. That God exists, there is only one God, He created the world and continues to rule over it in providence. God can work miracles when he wants. God does work miracles when it suits his purposes, to further his purposes. The Gospels present a historical account that are trustworthy. They're writing not only of human authors, they are written by human beings, but with God as the divine author. What they say is scripture, it is God's word. The miracles in the Gospels actually took place in time and space in the way that the Gospels describe them. And Jesus is who he says he is and who the Gospels say that he is. Now, if in fact a skeptic were to concede that, yeah, these, these weird things happen as recorded in the Gospels, these extraordinary events happen, um, would they simply be saying that something strange happened? And if they did, what would we do in response? What would we say in response? Are these just weird phenomena that occurred? 
strange events that are outside the norm, outside normal patterns, and, and then somehow we put religious language on them and, and call them miracles? Or are they the works of God that reveal his purposes? And if so, what are the purposes that they reveal? The Gospels do not see these as weird events. Extraordinary? Absolutely. But they are indicators of who Jesus was and what he came to do. The people who witnessed the miracles when they happened um, saw them in at least two ways. And we see this in our text today. If you look at verse number 16, a great prophet has appeared among us. They said God has come to help his people. There is some evidence that this place of mine, the locale of our story, was near Shonim, or Shunem, which in the Old Testament was a place where a woman lived and Elijah, her son, Elisha restored her son to life. Her son had died and he raised him from the dead. Elijah, who came before him, also raised a widow's son to life in Zarephath. So when the people saw Jesus do this, they, they made the connection with the Old Testament, that these prophets in the Old Testament had raised boys to life, and in one case it was a widow's son, and now Jesus has done that, and so he has done what the Old Testament prophets did as well, that this is an analogous or correspondent to what they saw in the Old Testament. It is the power of God at work, they recognized, and this means that Jesus is a prophet. But they also saw that God had come to help his people. And I think that this is really important. The miracles of Jesus were relevant to the people back then. They saw this as God's work. But what about now? Here we are at the end of 2018. What do we say about miracles? The Gospels record the miracles in, in order to tell us what happened. But they also have a religious purpose. They are to help us understand who Jesus was and what he did. And then we are invited to put our trust in him. So what we heard earlier from John 20, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Each of these miracles happened uniquely at one time in one place. But they have relevance for us today because they are signs. You see... Uh, I don't know if you've caught on, but up to this point in the sermon, I've been talking about modern people. But I think we are, in some ways, beyond that. We are now more in a postmodern world. Modern people oppose the notion of miracles. They put more confidence in science, and science doesn't really allow for these types of things. Um, but I would argue that people today are much more open to the idea of miracles. They're much more open to the idea of the supernatural. And because they are, we might think, oh, they think the way we do. They're open to miracles. Um, but there is an important difference. And I think we need to shift. I think in many ways we are on the wrong side of this thing and we need to come back to the right side. You see, today people see miracles as they may say it's God, a higher power, whatever, but that a miracle happens and somebody is cured, for example. And they're grateful, and one might even thank God for it. 
But I don't think people ask, what does it mean? What is the meaning of a miracle? What does this mean? And I think we might be in the same position. We are grateful to God and we will praise God and thank him when God does something amazing in our sight. I don't know that we stop and think, what does this mean? What is God's purpose in this? We like miracles. In fact, I tempted to define a miracle as something that people don't believe in until they need one. You know, and then when they get one, they're very happy. But it's more for personal benefit rather than what does this mean and what is its purpose? Is it just a random act of kindness, if you wish? Is it some benevolent but impersonal force that is at work in the world? In the Gospel of John, rather than using the word miracle or wonder, he uses the word sign which in Greek is semion, which we get semiotics from today, indicating that the miracles had a meaning. They aren't just some spectacular thing that happened. They are a sign. They point to something. There is a meaning. They signify truths about God, about Jesus the Messiah, and about the salvation, the redeeming of his creation that he brings. By the way, it isn't just John. I mean, John is the one who uses signs more than the others. But in Matthew and Mark and Luke, the miracles are seen as signs. Let me read to you from Matthew 12. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation ask for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then four chapters later, Matthew 16, the Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, when evening comes, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. I would say our generation does not look for a miraculous sign, it looks for miracles. The sign, what it signifies, I think is really not, doesn't show up on people's radar at all. They simply want something done. They don't care who does it, how it's done, just so it's done for their own personal benefit or the benefit of someone very dear to them. But the miracles that Jesus performed were in fact signs. They signified something. They pointed to something. At least three things. First of all, that Jesus was God. Secondly, that he was fully human. And thirdly, that he was the Messiah who was promised in the Old Testament. Let's start with the first. John opens his gospel by saying that Jesus is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The miracles that he performed as works of divine power confirm that he is in fact God. He is God. For most Christians, I think this is what stands out most about the miracles. 
But the people who originally saw the miracles didn't necessarily see that right away. As we saw in our text, some people said he was a great prophet. No one said, he must be God because he did this. But in fact, what we find is in fact that he is God. And while he did things as Elijah and Elisha did, they were not divine, they were not deities, but Jesus was. Secondly, Jesus is human. That is to say, we have a human being who lived among other human beings who is able to perform these things. And without question, God in the flesh, the incarnation, is a deep, deep mystery. But we can't simply see Jesus as this divine being floating around and healing people and doing things. This is someone who was fully human. The third thing is that Jesus is the Messiah. And this is important because in the Old Testament, the promises that are made about the Messiah include the realities that he would do these things. Isaiah 35, verse 5, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame leap, then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And this is just one passage of many about the promises regarding the Messiah. And they are fulfilled in the miracles that Jesus performed during his earthly ministry. We begin this series. I hope that we learn from it. But two concluding thoughts, um, final thoughts about miracles, and I hope that they will guide us in our study. The first is the primacy and the importance of the word. People seem to want miracles apart from any theological content. So rather than saying God, people say a higher power, for example. But when it comes to miracles, yeah, don't don't preach to me. Don't don't try to convert me. Don't talk to doctrine or talk doctrine or theology about me. Just give me the miracle. Um, we shouldn't be surprised at that because that's what happened when Jesus was here. In Luke chapter four, Jesus goes back to his hometown in Nazareth. Let me read to you. It's in Luke 4, beginning at verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today the scripture, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his own or in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. And the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Uh, 
Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. There were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went his way. You will notice that the passage that Jesus read from, three times, speaking or words are mentioned. Twice that he has come to proclaim good news, but also to preach the good news to the poor. So it isn't simply that the Messiah comes along, traipsing along, and then just sort of waves a magic wand and heals people and does all these miraculous things. He is here to tell us something. His words are important. Apparently, his, his townmates didn't think they were. They're like, hey, do hear what you did over there. We want good things. We want you to do good things for us too. And then when he says, you know, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, they're like, we don't want to hear that. We do not want to accept you as the Messiah. They want the miracles. They don't want the doctrine. They don't want the teaching. And because they did not believe, Jesus did not perform any miracles there. One of the things that has struck me as I've gone through the Gospels, and I've mentioned this before, that Jesus always seems to want to talk to the people that he is going to heal or do a miraculous sign for. Um, in the Gospel, it's, at one place it says he spent all day healing. And we're like, it's like, why? Why not just simply, okay, everyone, leprosy over here, and just wave my hand and you all are healed. No, there has to be conversation. Because he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He wants to teach them. These miracles are signs. They point to something. They aren't simply a good thing. Look at me. I got healed. Much more than that. The second thing is that the miracles are a validation of what he says. So first of all, it's important that Jesus speaks and we listen to him. But secondly, these miracles validate. Hey, what he just said, it's true. It is, in fact, true. It is confirmed by the miracles. In one place we read, all the people were amazed and said to each other, what is this teaching? This is in the synagogue when Jesus healed. What is this teaching? With authority and power he gives order to, orders to evil spirits and they come out. Yeah, he's been teaching us something and he validates his teaching by casting the demon out of this man who had been possessed. Divine power testified to Jesus' divine message. In Hebrews chapter 2, written after the incarnation, but looking back at Jesus, this salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributing or distributed according to his will. So as we begin this series, let's, let's be very clear. The teachings of Jesus are primary. And the miracles are those things that validate his teachings. Which means that the miracles have meaning. 
They aren't simply random events. They aren't just, oh, look at me, I won the lottery type of thing. It's connected to what Jesus says and to who he is. In this series, we will look at the miracles of Jesus. And the question that we need to consider is, what do they mean? What did they mean back then? And what do they mean for us today? Let's pray together. Our Father, it is the nature of things that we fail to recognize how much we are affected by the surrounding culture. Somehow we try to Christianize it or or baptize it. And and so we do thank you and we praise you for the way in which you have healed people. You've you've acted in their lives, um, in our lives. But I don't know that we've stopped to ask, what does this mean? What does this tell us about the God we worship? What do these things tell us about the Lord Jesus? I thank you that you do hear us, that you do answer our prayers. And we are so grateful for that. And we think particularly of Dan and uh, Gwen's dad. But by your grace, may we think about these things and what do they mean? And what do they tell us about you and your redeeming of creation? I thank you for your word, for the records of Jesus' life while he was here on earth. And as we go through this series on miracles, may you give us understanding. May we have a deeper and a biblical view of these things, that they are in fact signs. They point to you. And may we worship you as a result. I thank you for bringing us through this year, 2018. Now another year comes. We don't know what it will bring, but you're there. You've already prepared the way for us. Help us to trust you. To know that you love us. Thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.